What number is this, Chip? Episode 97. We remember Glenn Campbell. We discuss Harry Nielsen. Melanie Mitchell tours the Columbia Ranch with Misha Hoff as we take you on a tour of where they filmed the Monkees TV show. Okay, don't, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm sure that's You're listening to Zilch, a Monkees podcast. Zilch, your podcast full of monkeys. I'm Ken Mills, your host here today. We have an action-packed show. Today we'll be paying tribute to Glenn Campbell. We'll be discussing Harry Nielsen. Melanie Mitchell and Misha Hoff will be taking us on a tour of the Columbia Ranch, where the monkeys filmed a lot of the TV show. And right now, we're going to hop into some monkeys news. <laughs> It's been an amazing summer for everybody over at 7A. First, we have the Listen to the Band CD, and you can also get the secondary release from that, available as a download on Amazon or iTunes, and that is basically more of Listen to the Bands. Just so much excellent music there, but Glenn and Ian are not done. The folks at 7A are at it again. They recently announced the release of their first Michael Nesmith-focused project, Michael Nesmith at the BBC Paris Theatre will be issued as a limited edition 12-inch vinyl picture disc and as a CD digipack. The compact disc version will be accompanied by a 12-page booklet that includes a rare 1975 interview with Michael, an essay by Ian Lee, and an interview with Dave Pegg from the Fairport Convention, who played with Nez in the past. Release dates are September 15th in the UK and September 22nd in the United States. Links to pre-order will be in our show notes, but that's not all. In their email announcement of Michael Nesmith at the BBC Paris Theatre, 7A also included an Easter egg hinting at another upcoming release. The release Mickey Dolans and the Metropole Orchestra, Out of Nowhere, is in the pipeline and will be issued by the label in November. This is a live recording of Mickey's April 15, 2017 concert with the American Metropole Orchestra at the Rice Auditorium in Salem, Oregon, as part of the Smith Fine Arts Series. We will share more details as they are known. That's going to be quite a treat for anybody who got to catch the show, but it's also quite a treat for those of us who could not be there. So it's great to see that happen. Michael Nesmith's company, Video Ranch, has launched a YouTube channel. Viewers will find videos from 1977's Elephant Parts and the short-lived 1985 TV show, Television Parts. Several of the clips feature the then-unknown-but-destined-to-be stars Jerry Seinfeld, Whoopi Goldberg, Gary Shandling, and others. Search YouTube for Video Ranch or click on the link in our show notes. We come to a very sad part in our Monkeys News segment. We recently lost Glenn Campbell. At this point, we would like to turn it over to our good friend, Tim Powers. Tim is a DJ, comedian, and an all-around swell guy. And I asked him to put together a little something about the life and the work of Glenn Campbell. 
Take it away, Tim. Hey, by way of Phoenix, Wichita, Galveston, and the top of the charts, here's America's favorite archie, Glenn Campbell. Right here. It's Tim Powers from Deep Dish Radio uh, podcast, where you hear interviews with uh, with songwriters and with musicians and uh, and authors and things like that. And I've contributed to Zilch from time to time. I've even had Ken Mills on the show. Ken asked me to take a moment or two to uh, to remember the late Glenn Campbell, who we lost recently. You know, Glenn became one of the first uh, crossover superstars uh, from country music into popular music and really kind of set the scene for uh, for country to to become part of the popular culture um, but before uh, that he was an incredibly versatile singer and instrumentalist who served a stint with the wrecking crew and and with the beach boys and it was in the wrecking crew that uh, that he comes into our universe here's his very first contribution to any record with a monkey on it. In Chelsea there's a girl Working in a little coffee shop there She's got such a pretty smile And every chance I get I stop there I can't get her off my mind I'm so in love with the girl from Chelsea Oh yeah The girl from Chelsea Oh yeah The girl from Chelsea She doesn't care for me I'm just a hang-around who's there to talk with and though I wait until they close There's always someone else she'd rather walk with But I love her just the same Just the same I can't forget the girl from Chelsea Oh yeah The girl from Chelsea Oh yeah The girl from Chelsea I but she wants none of them And the friends don't like me much Cause I'm not one of them If I had a pocket full of gold She's the girl I'd give it all away for She's got everything I want is what I live each day for I know she can't be mine
That's the girl from Chelsea from uh, from Davies Pre Monkeys Colpix album. Born in Arkansas in 1936, uh, Glenn moved to Los Angeles in 1960 to become a session player, and he established himself as really <laughs> uh, quite a player. And, uh, and settled in with the Wrecking Crew. And uh, in addition to that album with Davey, uh, he later played on uh, not only the first two Monkees albums, but also on uh, Tommy and Bobby's uh, demos for uh, that you heard in the original pilot episode before the guys recorded their own vocals and they played the Boyce and Hart uh, vocal versions. <laughs> that guitar you hear, that's Glenn Campbell, folks. played with Jan and Dean, Frank Sinatra, he played with Dean Martin, Nat King Cole, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, and a ton more. Um, he also played guitar on Pet Sounds, uh, and you'll hear him uh, very through, and uh, also stood in for Brian Wilson when Brian was going through some troubles and, uh, and uh, functioned as a Beach Boy on tour. You know, he was a Beach Boy from December of 64 till March of 65. He was offered a permanent spot in the Beach Boys in 1965 and turned it down and instead signed a contract with Capitol Records in 1967. And it was there that he started partnering with Jimmy Webb, uh, the brilliant, brilliant songwriter. Um, And it was there that his hits were recorded, the songs that we will always remember Glenn for. Gentle on My Mind. Uh, by the time I get to Phoenix, Galveston, um, Rhinestone Cowboy, and this one that uh, rang in my head the minute I heard the news. 
here's arguably one of Glenn's greatest records. Here's a Wichita lineman. I am a lineman for the county And I drive the main road Searching in the sun for another overload I hear you singing in the wire I can hear you through the wine And the witcher tall lineman Is still on the line I need a small vacation But it don't look like rain And if it snows that stretch down south Won't ever stand the strain And I need you more than won't you And I want you for all Tall lineman is still on the We lost Glenn Campbell August 8th, 2017, and uh, the world is uh, worse off with his guitar silent. Thank you, Tim. That was excellent. Glenn Campbell is such a talent. Our condolences go out to his family and friends. So remember, see Mickey on tour, either solo or with Mark Lindsay and the Fab Four on the 50 Summers of Love tour. Don't forget to catch Peter Tork on October 1st at Westbury, New York at the Hot Autumn Nights concert. And meet Nez at ChillerCon October 27th through the 29th at the Chiller Theater in Rutherford, New Jersey. Peter Tork is working on something. He's been recording and it's exciting for all of us that are looking forward to a new Shoe Suede Blues release. This is fantastic. He's been teasing us with some videos and 
a glimpse into what's going on behind the scenes as they are working on something. We don't know exactly what, but we look forward to it. Don't forget to see Peter Tork live on October 21st in Westbury, New York at the Hot Autumn Nights concert. There have been recent events in the news, and I don't want to get too political or anything, but I do want to play a song that's kind of like a mantra of love for everybody here. This is from one of the releases of Good Times. This is a song called Better World. I know I'm looking for a better world, and I know you are too. So let's all bind together and work towards a better world. Take it away, Peter Tork. A better world is needed. I believe anyone can see it. A better world is coming if we live as we believe. A better world is started. No need to be broken hearted. No need for longing. We can have all we need. There's more than enough. To feed all the hungry, to mend every broken heart We can bring this about, if we mean it It's not gonna be easy, so start, so start, so start The way we live is funny Anyone can see it's gonna take more than money It's gonna take all we got The way we live is tragic Anyone can tell it's gonna take more than magic But believe it or not There's more than enough To feed all the hungry With enough heart and soul And if we don't tire We can bring this about it's not just my imagination, it's not just you and me, and it's not just two or three, it's the whole wide world on fire. You'll get your money back, your heart's
Get to catch Peter Tork on October 1st at Westbury, New York at the Hot Autumn Nights concert. So remember, see Mickey on tour either solo or with Mark Lindsay in the Fab Four on the 50 Summers of Love tour. And meet Nez at ChillerCon October 27th through the 29th at the Chiller Theater in Rutherford, New Jersey. The Monkees and Harry Nielsen are back in the news with the release of Gotta Get Up, the songs of Harry Nielsen, 1965 and 1972. A compilation featuring a variety of artists, Gotta Get Up includes the classic Cuddly Toy and Daddy Song. The CD of fully remastered tracks is accompanied by a generously illustrated 20-page full-color booklet, including track-by-track notes. Gotta Get Up is available now on Amazon.com or wherever fine music is sold. So while we're discussing Harry Nielsen, today joining us on Zilch here at the big Zilch table of fun, it's Marty Ross, good friend of the show and a good friend to me in life. How are you doing, Marty? I'm doing great, Ken. Thanks. And uh, thanks for asking me on to do this little bit about the song. You and I were talking the other day about Harry Nielsen. And you were talking about how important his songwriting is, not just to the monkeys, but to all of pop and rock culture. Can you talk about Harry Nielsen a little bit? Harry Nielsen was a really, really terrific songwriter and also really, really a force of nature when he uh, came into a room. And he was gregarious. He was bold. He was brash. He was loud. But he was also very very in tune with everything that was going on around him he was a uh, he could be a nice guy to be around he could be an ass he could be embarrassing but everything that he did was larger than life Mm. and that was Harry Nielsen why do you think it is that everyone that praises him on the outside of the monkeys world if you will they they really don't seem to follow him back to the monkeys work why do you think that is I don't know. I I I think possibly that Harry's career as a writer and as as an artist outweighs the cuddly toy mm-hmm. inclusion uh, early in his career when he was a staff songwriter and uh, you know I think that possibly uh, Harry is is in the path in the in the in that pathway of of music snobbery that that that, that people exclude the monkeys for some reason. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it it would happen to a lot of people. James Taylor had a song that uh, that the Monkees had had performed. It would be the same way. Yeah. If people like to mention names of things, and when they go, Harry Nielsen, you know, won a Grammy, this and that, had number one songs, performed this and that, Nielsen Schmielsen album. Oh, and also they perform. Uh, he wrote Cuddly Toy for the new for the Monkees. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think that that argument is a, a negative against the Monkees. I just believe that. By the time that you've blown the balloon up that high, that adding the monkey's name in there doesn't really push the envelope farther mm. in the eyes of the people that are looking for who was Harry Nielsen. Understandable. It's cool because we got to hear him on the the last Monkeys album, Good Times, yeah. with the with the title track. Do you have a favorite Harry Nielsen Monkeys written song? Well, that would be that one. I I I've, I really love that song. Yeah. And I really thought that they did a great job. You know, the thing is, is that is that what's what's strange is how how fresh 
and unique Harry Nielsen's writing still is, even today. There aren't many like him at all. Mm -hmm. Where you can provide, where you can have whimsy and comedy and also seriousness and rock and roll and and melody and lyrics that are very witty. Mm -hmm. It's not many people that write with all those weapons in one, one go. Very true. He had an underlying sadness to a lot of his music as well, along with the humor. I believe that my favorite song that he wrote that the Monkees did was Daddy's Song. It's a very, very semi-sweet song, and mm. it's uh, and the way the Monkees perform it is brilliant. And the friendship, I think, that really is sweet that came out of this was the friendship that Mickey and, and Harry had. Mm-hmm. And uh, I th- it's definitely, from what I know to be true is that it was definitely uh, uh, one of Mickey's all-time favorite friends. And I think that that Mickey got to know him before, I mean, on the on the ride when it was fun. Yeah. You know, I mean, when everything was new, when you'd go to, you know, Sunset Strip and you'd, you'd do, you'd drink and imbibe and uh, girls and the whole scene and everything was fresh and new. And everybody kind of laid off on that scene after a while. Yeah. And Harry didn't. Yeah. So Harry was maybe the most self-destructive person I've ever met. (laughs) And he never knew what was going to happen when you hung around with Harry. I mean, I probably hung around with him maybe, I'd say, a dozen times, something like that, maybe Mm -hmm. 12, 10, 12 times. He would call court... uh, to the bar, which was the name of the bar at the Beller Hotel, and we'd sit there and we'd drink, and we'd have uh, drinks, and he would we would play games called Spot the Lawyer, <laughs> and then we'd go up back to his house, which was right around the corner, up a little hill, and it was an amazing house. And sometimes we'd write songs, sometimes we'd play pool, sometimes we'd watch videos of Laurel and Hardy, which was his absolute favorite stay up until the wee hours in the morning and then maybe write some songs. And so, you know, he one time he came to see the Wigs, which was a very infamous time. He came to see the Wigs at Madame Wong's West, and afterwards we we did an encore, Twist and Shout, and it's... <laughs> I'm just thinking of it right now. Uh, we go off stage, and, and Harry says to Jim Cushionary, the, the leader and fearless leader of the Wigs, he says, you put one extra come on in the come on, come on, come on, come on. And then Jim Cushionary got into a fight with Harry Nielsen backstage. <laughs> Threw a fist at Harry. Harry ducked, and then Harry hit him, and they got into a grappling hook and got onto the ground, and my and the band had to break it up. And after that, I looked at Jim. He was sitting there breathing heavily in the dressing room, and Harry had gone. And I just sat there and says, was that the best thing that you could do at that moment? <laughs> you know. Well, well, how many people can say they got to throw punches and wrestle with Harry Nielsen, right? So that's a... Uh, quite a few from what I've heard. <laughs> and it's weird you mentioned at, at the, at the Bel Air, a lot of people would just show up. And we're talking some famous people, some, some big heavy hitters would just show up just yeah. to hang out with Harry at the bar. Yes, and that was it. Was, yeah, it was a nuts. It was very, very nuts scene. And then it was always end up going to the house. And and uh, Vidal Sassoon lived right right next door. Uh-huh. 
Harry liked had a pebble driveway that it was this tiny immaculate pebble driveway, and he'd always get out and of his car or and pick up a bunch of pebbles. At least the times that I was there, which he did it twice out of the times I was there, and he'd go up to a balcony and he'd sit there and he'd say, "Marty, you got to do this. It's just fun. Throw it over at that house over there." And I throw it over at the house and I go tink 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 <laughs> on the roof, tink 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 tink. And then this both times swung open a side a glass door, and it's just and it's Vidal Sassoon out in his balcony saying, "Nielsen, you asshole, stop it!" <laughs> Quite a sense of humor there. I, I I remember one day Dean Graykell, who's the son of Bruce Graykell, who's the attorney for both Mickey and the Wigs and Harry, Dean said, I got to tell you this thing. And I said, what do you say? Well, I, because I was sitting there feeling like I can't compete with this crowd. This is, this is not me. I'm a little kid from uh, Illinois. I, I don't know what I'm doing with all these, these superbly talented people that are all hanging around. And, and I'm just like, I basically, if I wasn't standing there with a drink, I'd be in the kitchen wrapping the garbage up. <laughs> That's, that's how I felt. And Dean said, I talked about you the other day, and he talked about me, and I, you talked with Harry about me, about what he's... I, I just asked him what he thought, because Dean's going around asking people what he thinks of the wigs and this and that. He's trying to drum up support, which was really, really cool. And he said, do you think that Marty uh, and the wigs can make it in town? He said, well, that singer, he's, he's really great. If the cream rises to the top... All the time. If you're a really good singer, you'll get, you'll make it. And I just like, I've always worn that as a badge of honor from Harry that uh, he thought of that about me. Because mm-hmm. to me, there was nobody that could sing like Harry. Right. I mean, he was from another planet. Just, he was the most beautiful singer, singing voice. And he could sing anything. He could sing anything. He could sing opera. He could sing country, rock and roll, hard rock. He could sing it all if he wanted to. I really, really enjoyed my times that I had with him. Even though maybe some days I might not feel good for the next day. <laughs> now, Marty, you've done a really cool version of a Harry Nielsen song, and you kind of did a little mashup of a couple of them. And I wanted you to come on and talk about this a little bit, and I wanted to play this for all the Zilch listeners, because they might not even be aware that Harry wrote what they're going to hear, right? He wrote the song one, and he performed the song without you. And yes. I, yeah. And and I did this in the same thing, and it's weird because that particular bed tracks that are around that are from a completely different original song that I wrote called Why. I mean, they're not even the same tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they're the, the they're the same. They're the bed tracks are to a completely different song. And one night I was sitting there thinking about Harry Nielsen, and I just in the tracks without the vocals of the lead of the song called Why, I started singing one over it. And the chord progression is completely different. Everything is completely different, but the melody fit. And I went, that is amazing. It's not, it's just completely different. So it's two songs already. Mm-hmm. And then in the breaks, I thought, you know, does the chorus of Without You fit here? And I just like did it, and it was like amazing. I went, this is a song that was written called Why, that now is a song called One and Without You, and it's a Harry Nielsen tribute. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's pretty cool. It's just a demo. I, 
I left it as it was because I, I liked where it was. And I, there's uh, all me, uh, for, uh, drum patterns, uh, I'm playing bass, playing, I believe it's a little harpsichord in the background. I'm playing piano, I'm playing guitar, and I think there's eight vocals of me uh, on the choruses. Wow. Plus a singer named Carrie Benoit. That, her doing uh, ah part in the chorus is from the song Why, which is now borrowed and now sounds unique and makes this song really lift. And Carrie Benoit is the background singer for Smokey Robinson. Ah, okay. Yeah. And she's, uh, she's really, really cool. And uh, this is just, it's just a real odd thing, but it came out sounding pretty good, I think. Well, here it is. Marty Ross, when I heard this, I said we had to play it on Zilch for everybody. So here it is, Marty Ross with One. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as sad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. Now is the saddest experience you'll ever know. It's the saddest experience you'll ever know It's just no good at most since she went away Now I spent my time just drinking wine of yesterday
I love it, Marty. I want to thank you for letting us play that. I know that uh, there might have been some apprehension, but I really love it. I, I thought it was great, and I really hope that the Zilch listeners dig it. Uh, as you listeners might have noticed, I had a rhyme in there that said drinking rhymes, uh-huh. and it was different than what Harry had originally written, and it was something that I made by mistake as I sang it. But as I listened to it more, considering what I was thinking about it, Harry, with the time when I did that this demo it makes more sense to me so i just kind of kept it in there as a personal privilege and that's uh, something that i wanted to straighten away for harry listeners like a little happy accident yeah <laughs> just like that's bob it. ross a happy little tree that's it so you know <laughs> you have some really cool stuff coming up here you're going to be doing a show with some really cool guys i am doing a show you, you're talking about the show I'm doing with Felix Cavallari, a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member and the main singer-songwriter from The Rascals, mm-hmm. from The Young Rascals to The Rascals. And I've always wanted to play a show with him because it's been my honor to spend over $500 personally on his records over and over again over the years. I've worn them out. Mm-hmm. I love The Rascals. I've always loved them a lot. I've, I, I think of them as being the American Zombies except they have even more hits. Yeah. But they're that kind of band that they could play their own music, they played their records, you know. They're certainly, they were certainly one of the most talented bands mm-hmm. in the world. And then, of course, you have Mickey Dolenz, who I'm, I'm supporting and playing in front of. And that'll be just, well, for all the many reasons that you would think, is completely an honor for me to do. And uh, they're they're celebrating the year since 1967. It's the 50th year since 1967. And something that I'm going to be doing at the show is I'm going to be reeling off a medley of songs from 1967 in very fast format that actually points out how amazing it was that the monkeys were as big as they were in 1967, considering the music that came out in 1967. It's an incredible lineup of all-time iconic songs. Not just, oh yeah, I remember that. It's, oh yeah, that song. It goes on and on and on. Just take a look at Billboard's Top 100 songs in 1967. And this is a year that the Monkees dominated. Yeah, absolutely uh, amazing. It, you know, and their albums were there, I don't know how many weeks, but certainly was more than <laughs> half of the year. I mean, they're just incredible, incredibly there with that year and then the rascals that was their big that was their biggest year too Mm -hmm. so between the two of them let's see if you were to just say the monkeys had three albums that were number one that year was that about right yes and then sergeant pepper showed up (laughs) right sergeant pepper showed up but then then if you add that plus all the hits that the rascals have 1967 i was 10 years old so that for me, I was right in the wheelhouse and was being very spoiled by the monkeys and the rascals at that time. And so it's just a very big honor for me to do it. It's October 21st at the Saban Theater in Beverly Hills. You can buy the tickets directly from their site, and actually, they're very reasonable if you buy them from the Saban site. So if you can look for the Saban site and you're in the neighborhood, you're either in San Diego or you're uh, in Santa Barbara, or you're in the desert, uh, you stop in and have a wonderful night with us, and uh, I'll start you off with a great show. And I hope Felix and 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 Mickey will be in great form, which I'm sure they will be. And it's going to be a wonderful night. And Felix isn't playing very many shows anymore. 
Right. So it's very, very rare that you're going to be able to see this guy play and very, very proud to be able to do that. Thank you for mentioning it, Ken. I'd totally forgotten about it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, Zilch listeners, if you're in the area, go see Mickey Dolan's of the Monkeys with Felix Cavalieri of the Rascals and Marty Ross opening up the show at the Saban Theater in Beverly Hills. Do it. Check it out. Marty, we want to thank you for stopping by today, and thank you for being a friend to Zilch, and you are a huge Monkees fan. Marty, we will see you soon, and everybody get out there and check out Marty, Mickey, and Felix. Thank you. And now for the main part of our show today, it's a look at the Columbia Ranch, in a segment produced by Sarah Clark, directed by Melanie Mitchell. Let's all go on down to the Columbia Ranch and monkey around. Welcome back to the Zilch Clubhouse. I'm Melanie Mitchell, you're a TV girl. And when I first started working on my book, Monkey Magic, I started to come across mentions of the Columbia Ranch as a filming location for the monkeys. I have to admit, I had a very strange mental image of exactly what that was. I imagined a vast swath of land, an actual ranch, far, far away from Los Angeles, on the other side of the mountains, out in the valley somewhere where a production could locate for a few days and film out under the open skies with sagebrush and dusty trails extending for miles in every direction. Go milk the cow. See that you fill this. Boy, that just proves how far out in the country we are. What do you mean? The milkman doesn't even deliver here. <laughs> I guess, uh, I guess I better go warn the cow. <laughs> But one day, about a year ago, I stumbled across an amazing resource called the Unofficial Columbia Ranch website. And today we have on the Zilch Hotline the owner and creator of that very site, Misha Hoff. Welcome to Zilch, Misha. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Allison. Oh, I was so happy to hear from you. I'm glad that you agreed to be on our show. I love your website. Thank you. When I first discovered it, I spent hours and hours just lost in that website, wandering around the interactive map, just soaking up all the photographs in history. But how in the world did you decide to build a website about the Columbia Ranch? Well, it actually started quite some time ago, about two decades ago, basically. And uh, I was, I had seen many television shows and really was kind of, I guess you could say, into the nostalgic TV from the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, um, uh, Father Knows Best. Shows like Hazel and Gidget and I Dream of Genie and Bewitched. And, of course, there were the monkeys in there, too. And I just really liked those shows. And Bewitched was actually my favorite one. I just really wanted to see how they did the things that they did on the show and where it was filmed. So they went in so many different locales. And um, I kind of started a website based on that first called Misha's Bewitched. You know, that took off pretty well. And, And back in 1998, when I started that, I also got an interest of where was their house, their their physical house located. And that brought me basically to a an old movie backlot that was called Columbia Ranch. However, I, I could not find any information on it whatsoever. And I through some time I did find out that it actually now belonged to Warner Brothers, who bought it in 1970. And that was basically all I could find. And it's like there's gotta be more information about this. There's you know, there's Universal Studios and Paramount Studios and Warner Brothers, and everybody knows about RKO, RKO Studios. And but why was there not more information about Columbia Ranch or what used to be, you know, the Columbia Ranch pictures? 
So I decided to delve into that. And that's kind of how my research started on the whole thing. Wow. Now, do you know why it's called a ranch? I guess you could say we're kind of starting in, in how this all started back in 1934 when Columbia Pictures, at the time owned by Harry Cohen, um, needed a, a backlot to film their serials on and even their movies because they didn't have anything. They were actually located uh, on Sunset and Gower uh, down in, in downtown Los Angeles, basically. Where did he come from? Left on Gower, through the studio gates, and right on the set here. Mm-hmm. And um, they they just needed to have a place to, to film. And instead of renting from all these other studios that like they did, Harry Cohn decided that they needed to find a piece of land to do this on. And he found a 40-acre plot right there in Burbank um, and decided to purchase it. And it was basically a, a, I won't say a a true empty field, but it was pretty bare. There was nothing there other than some, like what you were describing, you know, a ranch-like field with with sagebrush and and dusty trails and... um, they after they purchased that, that's when they started building their uh, facades on there for their movies. And so after Harry Cohn decided to purchase this and and start building movie sets on there, uh, the name kind of got stuck because it was such an empty place when I first purchased it. That it kind of did look like a, a, a ranch, almost like a cattle ranch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it had a few fences here and there to to keep some elements in place and all that kind of stuff. And so it, it looked a little deserted. So it got the nickname of a ranch more than anything. And since Columbia owned it, it basically kind of got stuck as named Columbia Ranch. Was Burbank already a, a city at that time or was it? Yes. Yes. So were there residential streets around that plot of land? Yes, there were residential streets around it. Basically, the layout for Burbank was already in place. The Columbia Ranch itself was three blocks away from, at the time, what was called First National Pictures, then later became Warner Brothers Pictures. But the streets were already in place, and actually, according to some old maps that I found from the 1920s, streets were actually planned to go through the 40-acre lot. They just had not been put in place yet when when, um, Columbia purchased this piece of land. uh, But there was not a lot of residential areas around it. There were not, there were a few homes here and there, but they were sporadically spread out. So they weren't in, I guess you could say the picture, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get you. Incidentally, I did a little uh, research and I found out that 40 acres is uh-huh. less than a 10th of a square mile. Right. So it's right. really quite small. Yeah. It's just a city block. Wow. And, and the reason, you know, Harry Cohn purchased that land, because it was, there was nothing around it at the time. And so that's why they decided to purchase that, because it was so clean and clear of everything around it that they could film anything that they wanted over there, you know, which is kind of the reason why they started Backlots, basically, is because they had their own spaces. Movie studios had their own spaces to build whatever they wanted without being, I guess you could say, hindered by the surrounding areas. And so that's what happened to the Columbia Ranch. It was purchased with the intent of doing whatever they wanted to do or needed to do for their studios, for their movies and serials, uh, and not have the commotion of cityscapes in the background or, or people running around or planes going over or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be very important, especially in a city as large as Los Angeles. Do you have a rough idea of how far away 
the Columbia Ranch was from the Sunset and Glower studio, which is where the monkeys did their, their main filming. Right, right, yeah. The monkeys uh, filmed on the Sunset Gower lot and basically were about 20 minutes, 20, 20 to 25 minutes away from the uh, Columbia Ranch because it's on the other side of the Hollywood Hills. Okay. So it would have been a major production to say, okay, we're going to pick up and film on the, on the ranch this afternoon. I mean, you would have had to get a lot of stuff out there. Yes and no. Uh, that was the beauty about, you know, Columbia, the way they did it. They basically had, I guess you could say, multiples and duplicates of a lot of their things, uh, including set pieces and everything else that were housed on the Sunset Gower lot and also on the Columbia Ranch. So when the monkeys were filming, say, in the mornings at the Sunset Gower lot in the stages over there, and then you had to go out for an afternoon shoot at the ranch, they didn't always have to pack up all their props and everything else because they most likely already had their duplicates out there. Ah, okay. So let's set aside my silly mental image of this vast <laughs> cattle ranch out in the hill. <laughs> and let's talk about what's actually there in those 40 acres. So let's take an imaginary tour of the Columbia Ranch sure. as it was in 1966. And while we explore... You can perhaps mm-hmm. give us some examples of some of the memorable films and TV shows that used the various parts of the ranch over the years. Sure. So let's start. Let's start with the city streets. There were several. Okay, there were several city streets indeed. The main city streets that they had was there was one large New York Street that was basically it spanned 50 feet across. So from the left side to the right side of the street, it was about 50 feet, which could you know maneuver about eight to to nine cars on the road itself if they needed to. There was also a brownstone street, basically that veered off from the, I guess you could say the right side of New York Street, that would loop around uh, into a skid row. And that skid row would then connect to another street called Modern Street, which would loop back to the New York Street. So we had anything from a New York street with, with, I guess you could say, semi-skyscrapers to a brownstone street where it kind of looked like you're a little bit more tenant-like residential to a skid row, which looked more like very run-down housing and everything else, to what they called a modern street where there was basically an entire street with shops lined on one side. Mm-hmm. Look, fellas, please let me have a new stick of maracas. Well, you already got a pair of maracas, man. Yeah, besides, David, you ought to save your money for a rainy day. Right. Hey, I think it's going to rain. And, and, you know, the monkeys filmed a lot on those particular streets, too. Uh, There's plenty of episodes that they go around. We were talking earlier or something that was mentioned about the Friendly Neighborhood Kidnappers episode mm-hmm. where where they're literally in front of Modern Street. There is a theater on Modern Street. And they were in there when they had their hands in the, the cement uh, after the kidnappers basically told them to put it in there. Oh, yeah. Fellas, I had to pay for the sidewalk. Now fun is fun. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Trump. So we see a theater there. Uh, that's the other beauty also. The, this particular lot had so many different elements. Uh, they have two theaters, a city street with shops. And incidentally, some of those shops and uh, buildings that you see on those streets were actually what they call practical sets, meaning that they could actually go inside of them to film. Oh. 
So instead of having to construct a shop on the Sunset and Gower lot on your soundstage, you could set up and film inside one of the shops on the street. Exactly, exactly. I'm going to put you on the spot because <laughs> we didn't talk about it. I had no idea. The the shop where they go in, in the spy episode to buy the uh -huh. red maracas, is that? That is an example of one of those practical sets, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> It is literally at the corner of what was called Modern Street and New York Street. And it was a practical set that had been there basically since the beginning. A pair of red maracas. I have a pair for $6. I've only got 50 cents. They're yours. <laughs> And, and yes, that's, that is a true shop that has been used for many different uh, shows, including the monkeys. And uh, it's also, you can see it in Dennis the Menace and the Partridge family and all that. And what's really kind of interesting and coincidental about that is behind those facades was actually another soundstage that the monkeys use quite a lot. Oh. There's actually an episode where the monkeys basically walk out from that soundstage straight onto Brown Street into their telephone booth to supposedly change into their Superman outfits. This looks like a job for monkey men. Quick, men, the phone booth. Let's Look at that. Hold it. Federal law W443, paragraph 7, prohibits the use of any public phone booth for the purpose of changing into or out of secret identification. <gasps> but if we don't change into our secret identities, the entire television audience is doomed. <laughs> hey, look, look, look. It's the heat. The heat. The fire. The fire. The fire. The or the Fredis paper. That's right. Oh, and I see, I always assumed that was on Sunset and Gower. Nope. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> They, the, 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 they actually filmed a lot on the ranch. I mean, there were quite a few studio shots at sunset, as we know, and we see that in the episodes too. Uh, but uh, stage 33 and 34 originally on the Columbia Ranch was used quite often for uh, many of the Monkeys episodes to do interior shots, whether it was the uh, performing stage that they were on or in this particular case during that episode that you just mentioned when they come out you know, and go into the, the telephone booth. Now, were there any TV shows that were using the sound stages on the Columbia Ranch for their principal filming? Because I know there were a whole bunch of Screen Gems TV shows that were being made around that same time. Exactly. Here Come the Brides was filmed 95% at the Columbia Ranch. They had stage uh, 30 and uh, also Departure Family filmed a lot there on the ranch. They actually had half their sets set up in stage on stage 29 and stage 30 there. Aha. Uh -huh. Hello world in a song that we're singing. Come on get happy. Happy. We'll make you happy. 
So let's move on out of the city streets and sure. into the residential area called Blondie Street. Well, we would have to literally leave New York Street and Modern Street, and then we get to the intersection of Park Boulevard, which is basically, we see a bunch of row homes, and it's literally located next to the park, which I'll get to in just a moment. But Park Boulevard turns into what is called Blondie Street. Now, why is it called that? Well, Blondie Street is named after Blondie Bumstead, the cartoon from the papers that turned into a television series, which, of course, was owned by Columbia uh, and Screen Gems. The first house that was basically put up there was the Blondie Bumstead home. Blondie! Blondie! Oh, look. One of my blue socks is green. Dagwood, I put two clean pairs in your drawer last night. Why didn't you put on the other pair? Well, the other pair's blue and green, too. Now, Dagwood, keep the blue sock on your right foot, take the green sock off your left foot, and then put on the other blue one. Yeah, but I got the right sock on the wrong foot already. Well, now I'm mixed up. Never mind. Oh, thanks. Wow. So who else lived on Blondie Street? Mr. Wilson from Dennis de Menace and Dennis de Menace lived over there. Also, the Partridge family lived on Blondie Street. And currently, well, I guess you could say currently, if anybody ever watches the show The Middle, it is at the end of the Blondie Street. The middle is at the end. Okay. The, well, I guess you could say semi at the end. There is an <laughs> intersection there, but yes. <laughs> And Bewitched was on Blondie Street, right? Bewitched was also on Blondie Street. That is correct. Bewitched was on there. And then next to Bewitched is the, uh, it's called the Lindsay House, but Hazel lived over there. And so did Gidget. And then at the end of that Blondie Street, where you basically curve around the park, there was a gigantic mansion or a mansion set called the Deeds Home. Mm-hmm. All these names for these houses basically come from original movies in general, mm-hmm. like Blondie House came from the series and movies. There is the Partridge Family House. There is the Bewitched House, originally called the Higgins House because there was a television show called Our Man Higgins. The Lindsay House, which is the Hazel House as we know it, comes from an old movie. And so does the Deeds Mansion. So you mentioned the Lindsay House a couple of times. And Uh for our listeners, the Lindsay House is where uh, Leslie Vandenberg and her father, General Vandenberg, lived. Correct, correct. I was going to get to that, but you already beat me to it. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, that's okay. Yes? Oh, hello. Um, I'm selling magazine subscriptions. Oh, working your way through college, eh? No, I'm working my way down the block. The the Deeds House was used in the episode One Man Shy, and that's where Valerie... Yes. Yes. Yes, which is, that's where we see the balcony scene upstairs. That's correct. Miss mm-hmm. Cartwright! I love you, my dear, more than I can tell you. I love you. Valerie, yes, darling, come inside. It's chilly out here. I love I you more I every someone. day of the week. I love you twice as much on Friday because I want the weekend off. Just for the listeners to know that some of these houses, some of these structures did have... Uh, semi-interiors, when they were originally built, they did not have interiors. They were just a three-wall facade, as they call it. Only in the last 30 to 40 years have they started really putting interiors into these homes. Um, The Lindsay House being one of them basically is fully uh, finished in somewhat sense. Uh, It was originally done for Lethal Weapon back in the 90s, so they could film interior shots in there and at the same time pan the camera out from, say, the living room window outside so you can see action going on outside. 
you know, they, they look so solid uh-huh. and so real. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and, and I knew, I knew the, like the, the buildings on the modern street and the New York street, I knew those were facades, but the houses on Blondie street looked like any suburban neighborhood house. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the beauty, beauty of that whole section over there. Actually, all of Columbia Ranch at the time when it was still complete is that uh, and, and they were known for that, too, that Columbia actually had some of the better sets. They were so well. First of all, they were well constructed. Second of all, they were so realistically done because they had so much detail to it that they could basically be used in extreme close ups and still be very believable and not just a painted you know, facade or paint a drop like so many other studios had. Mm-hmm. I was going to talk about the Deeds Mansion. Anybody who is familiar with any of the Three Stooges serials or, or you know, shorts or whatever will recognize that building because it was used quite a lot in there too. And the serials were filmed on the Columbia lot, included not only the Three Stooges, but also some superhero. Yes. Superman, Captain America, the original Batman. That's actually the other thing I was going to mention about the Lindsay House. That was actually the original, original Bruce Wayne mansion. Oh, my God. A lot of people don't even know that because they know the Batman series and and Superman series from, you know, about the 60s and all stuff. But the originals from the 40s were Columbia serials, and they were all filmed on this lot. Wow. Okay, that that makes my day. So, <laughs> so, so Blondie Street is sort of a, a, a curve, and tucked into that curve, we have the park. That's correct. That's correct. Within the center of that curve, there is the park, and it has been there since its inception, basically. From the very beginning, they put in a fountain that we also see in, in say, the Three Stooges serials and a lot of the other serials, too. And the park has been used for so many different things. The musical 1776 that was filmed in 1972 basically transformed half the park and its fountain to, you know, the time period of 1776 and uh, had Ben Franklin sitting there, uh, you know, singing his songs and drawing his drawings. Uh-huh. Cheer up, John. At this very moment, our cause is again riding high, sitting straight in the saddle and in full gallop for Virginia. And the women are serene. Oh, good God. Full bosomed. Full bosomed. Full bosomed, Benji. Everyone a queen. For the alleys, women, please, of old Virginia. Oh, my God, it's fearily, fairily. Come on, John, step lovely. Fearily, fairily. Everywhere on me, on me. Fearily. Now, the park will be familiar to the Monkees fans. Anytime the Monkees are in a park setting, if you're seeing bushes and benches, and especially if you're seeing a fountain, that's yes. the park at the Columbia Ranch. Um, if you see them romping with dogs, that's the park. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> if you see them romping with senior citizens, that's the park. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yes, as a matter of fact, in, in uh, the friendly neighborhood kidnappers, you'll see them uh, sitting on the bench. Uh, when the kidnappers basically try to find them and, and don't see them the first time because they're holding up the newspaper, mm-hmm. they're sitting in the park and behind them you can actually see the Deeds Mansion. And then as they romp around and do some more, they, they end up in the front of this bush where Davy basically just jumps over and then you know hides behind it. 
uh, and behind that you will see what they call the Skeffington House, which is from another movie. So yeah, they're they're all over the park. Almost any episode, well, you can basically say every episode because the intro to the monkeys, whether it's season one or season two, will have a little clip of the park in there somehow, some way. Oh yeah, the the little somersault thing they do. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and they're they're. Water suits, yes, they're wetsuits. Uh huh. Okay, now I'm gonna put you on the spot, but I know you know where so, I'm going with this. I know <laughs> that fountain. That fountain yes. is very famous. Yes, Why? because the fountain, uh, shot from a particular angle, faces directly onto the what they call the Park Boulevard apartments, which is used in the opening of. You want to say it together? Friends. Now, the skyline behind those is an add-on. It's a matte uh, projection, basically, as they call it, because, of course, it doesn't really exist. There. There's no New York skyline in Los Angeles. So, yes, that's what you see. You see that in every opening of Friends, and also it, it, it shows up in so many different, once again, so many different shows and, and movies even. And uh, anybody who's watched, say, Pretty Little Liars, they will recognize it as one of the city blocks that the kids basically walk on and, you know, walk by and all that kind of stuff. Now, that row of elegant townhouses on Park Boulevard mm -hmm. um, appear in the monkeys a lot. They're very prominent in um, a, a romp in the episode Captain Crocodile, where the children are chasing the monkeys um, Correct. through many corners of the Columbia Ranch. But there's one bit of that where they're chasing up the steps of one house and then down, and then they go a few yards down the street and then go up the steps of another house and down. That's the, the Park Boulevard houses, right? Well, yes and no. It okay. is part of what everybody knows as the Park Boulevard. It's actually called the Boston Row Homes. Mm -hmm. They are on the, I guess you could say, the left-hand side of the city block that we see for the opening of Friends. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, it's Unfortunately, that section has been completely gone. It, it burned in 1974, so we don't have that anymore. Mm -hmm. All we have literally is, is what we see, like what we see on Friends. That section still exists, but the other half does not, which is the section that you're referring to for that particular episode where the kids literally go up and down and mm -hmm. um, go in and out of the houses. That that particular area, the Boston Row Homes also had, I guess you could say, an L shape to it. And the far end of that L shape was called Gray Square, which we see Davey and, and the, the boys uh, do their little song and dance with the hat and cane uh, in Dance Monkey Dance. Well, see, they used, I, I, I did not realize that literally until I watched it again, is that, you know, so many uh, so many snippets from particular episodes were reused in so many other songs. And so they keep coming back. So mm -hmm. I kind of had a hard time keeping track of exactly which ones they were. Uh, believe me, there's a whole section in my book called We're the Young Generation and We've Got Something to Recycle. Oh, there you go. <laughs> And now there's one other facility in the park that we didn't mention, and that's something that's still there because I've seen it in aerial photographs. Oh, yes. It is, it is indeed still there. It's the swimming pool. Yes. Yes. It was put in there in 1948. The pool was used uh, for episodes of the monkeys, including what we see in the credits when the guys are underwater and, and chasing around. And mm -hmm. it's it's been used in, in 
uh, Partridge Family. It has been used in I Dream of Genie, even Bewitched, um, even Hazel. So yeah, it's it's something that is a very active and prominent part of the park. Mm-hmm. And I understand that that swimming pool was used for the movie Head. There, there is no swimming pool, but there is a scene where the guys jump off a bridge to basically commit suicide. And when they right. jump off the bridge, they're on a bridge. But when they land in the water, they're in the swimming pool at the Columbia Ranch. That is correct. That is correct. <laughs> I so, actually have, I actually have some uh, behind-the-scenes pictures of that of when they shot that. It's really kind of interesting to see. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll post some of those in the comment section of our Facebook group. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. Awesome. Okay, so let's move to another section of the Colonial Ranch. There are Western streets and Colonial streets, and those are off on one side. What's the difference there? Well, um, let's see. uh, To kind of give people a mental image of where we were, so we were talking about the New York Street and the City Streets. That's basically in the northeast corner of the ranch, I guess you could say. And the park is semi-center. Uh, I guess you would almost say the Park Boulevard is truly the center of the ranch. Blondie Street kind of veers out from that. And to the left of the Blondie Street, behind the facades of the Partridge family and the Blondie house, um, there was also a church at the bottom of that corner, by the way, which I forgot to mention. That is now the middle house. Anyhow, behind that is what is called the convent area. And right next to that is the colonial slash European section. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, unfortunately, all this is gone now. This does not exist anymore because it burned. Oh. Uh, and, and then was demolished also in 1996. The rest of it was demolished. But yes, the European streets, as I call them, and then next to that, to the left of that, was the Western set, which was two long streets that stretched out all the way. Uh, and there was Western A and Western B. Western B is the furthest out and basically had more dilapidated buildings. And Western A was the prominent Western street that was used in many movies. Uh, One of the most famous ones was High Noon. There's many episodes where the boys are filming on that particular section. Mm -hmm. And Monkeys in a Ghost Town, they would have used Western B because that's the ghost town. That's the the falling apart. Right. When I first... You know, when we first start that particular episode, they actually are what they call, what is called the back end of the Western set. It is the furthest down, uh, I guess you could say closest to the bewitched house, if you want to say that way. And so that's where we find them in their monkey mobile and they get out and they see it's basically a ghost time with dust balls and, you know, <laughs> stuff just flying around over there. It, it's really kind of a nice shot because it, it gives you kind of a sense of how big it actually was even though when sometimes filming it it seems like things are very small but the set was actually quite large at one point in time we even see peter you know wave right in front of the stop sign as the stop sign goes up and you know says stop and go mm-hmm. cross at the green not in between he's been out in the sun too long he was no bargain in the shade we see particular sections that was actually the oldest oldest part of the western set that was built basically, in, I want to say about 1936 or so, and it had been there forever and a day. Wow. So they also used one of those streets for Hillbilly Honeymoon when they pull into the town and there's a stripe right down the middle of the street. Exactly, yes. Uh, that basically, as you said, as we were talking about, it's, it's uh, Western Street B 
that they use for that too. Like I said, it's it was more of a rundown area. It looked more dilapidated, which was great because if you wanted to use something in old westerns or in this particular case for the Monkeys episodes where it looks like it's a ghost town, it was a perfect setting. Mm-hmm. Now, both those particular episodes, Monkeys in a Ghost Town and the Monkey Hillbillies, they used one particular set in Monkeys in Ghost Town. Davy comes out from a building uh, before he turns basically into his uh, Western wear. Nervous, eh? Played your yellow-livered card. So Kincaid paid a hired killer to come and get me. That's right, Slade. I paid him $500 for your life. $500, huh? Well, I've only got three words for you, Black Bart. Yeah, what are they? Six hundred dollars. Kincaid, you're a yellow-livered coward. And that was called the City Hall slash Courthouse, and it was one of the biggest buildings on that Western Street set. Originally, there's a really neat story behind it. Originally... That was actually a showboat set, one of the very first big sets built there on the ranch mm-hmm. on that particular side. It was also one of those – it's a practical set. And at the same time as it was a practical set, it was also a functional construction building called the Staff Building, which the Columbia Ranch uh, and their crew basically used to build a lot of things on set pieces and also all the fake bricks that a lot, a lot of the facades have. Hmm. So they had their like their own in-house construction. Oh yes. Teams. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. They had they had in-house construction over there. They had a mill. Uh, they had an incendiary over there. They had, uh, you know, we'll get more to it. But they had a prop department, a makeup department. Uh, they had everything over there. It was a fully functional back lot. As like I said, they coincided with the Sunset Gower stuff, so they didn't have to bring stuff over all the time. They had it right there on the spot. Okay, so so for example, if if they were going to film first thing in the morning at the um, Columbia Ranch, they didn't have mm-hmm. to get made up over at Sunset Gower and then make the trip twenty minute trip already in makeup. They could do the makeup correct. there. Correct. Yes, correct. They actually had a, a makeup and wardrobe department right there on the ranch, mm-hmm. not too far from the Western Street actually. So. You know, the, the, the boys would go in there and get their makeup done. And most likely it would be the same makeup artist that was at the Sunset Gower lot because most of them were assigned a particular artist to do this for them. So they stuck with the same look and feel uh, the entire run of the show. Now, this wasn't on the list of episodes I suggested you look at, but you said that you'd watched most, if not all of them, in the mm-hmm. last couple of days. Thank you so much. Monkeys in Texas. Yes. The the ant's house and the corral and... Correct. When the bad guys go galloping away, was that also on the Western Street? Well, no, that was on the Western Street. I'm kind of glad you brought that up because I did make note of that. Um, You know, the the monkeys, I mean, really, I'll have to say this much. And and, um, it was so great to to watch the monkeys. Like I said, I just rewatched and just kind of refreshed my memory. But I have been watching their episodes for, for many years because they're really one of the only shows um, that I was able to find so many, I guess you could say, I won't say secrets, but places of the ranch that I had not been able to see before from that time period because simply the movies or the shows just didn't go there. But the monkeys did. They filmed in so many different places that were not normal spots for a film crew to do anything with. That particular one, like the Monkeys in Texas, 
It was actually filmed on what became the Here Come the Bride set. Oh boy! Oh boy! Where are we? Huh? We've been driving for three days. Yeah. yeah? Huh? We're in Texas. Oh. oh. This is my aunt Kate's little greenhouse. Are you sure Aunt Kate won't mind us coming? The last time I was here, she said, "Drop in anytime." When was that? Spring of '54. <laughs> Which is further up, and it's in the Berm area, not the Berm and Lagoon. There were actually three different type of berms, but the Berm area which a berm is a, a large hill, basically, I guess you could say, man-made mountain slash hill overgrown with grass and trees and everything else. Mm-hmm. And um, before they filmed the bride set, the monkeys were filming on that particular area, or in that particular area uh, for the Monkeys in Texas episode. So there was a house in that area that, that they could get? There was a, well, it's a, it's a facade. It was not a full house. It was just a three-wall structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, made to look like you know a log cabin almost. In this particular time, in this particular episode, they painted it green for the show, mm-hmm. and the barn. And the barn is fake too. There's nothing in it. It's just a false front. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's where they were. So they they did that over that, there in that area. That solves a, a mystery for me because I was I was trying to place that house somewhere on the western set, and that just didn't make any sense. But now now that you said it was over by the berms, I'm like, okay, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Because you see them galloping away, and they're running up a hill, and that's one of the berms. Yes, yes. As a a matter of fact, I'm I'm working, revamping my website, and there will be several pages, you know, specifically dedicated to the berm area and the Here Come the Bride set. And they will also mention the monkeys being there and everything else, and they will have pictures of it. So, you know, people can kind of get a glimpse and, and an idea of where things were from that time period. So, so what else in the monkeys was was filmed in that berm area? From the neighborhood kidnappers, mm-hmm. there is a scene in there after, let's see, the guys run down in in the song that they do, the video to the song "Last Run to Clarksville." Mm-hmm. It's a chase scene, right? There's a chase scene, and they come down this, uh, and I'll get to that in a moment too. Double staircase on a building, which is also mm-hmm. on the ranch, and from there they go on to basically what it looks like a gigantic area of rocks like a rock wall almost mm-hmm. you know yeah. that that section is basically right there by the berm next to the bride's area here on the bride section so that was filmed right there in that same area mm-hmm. and uh as we go through that particular song and then you know they go through uh, the colonial european streets basically the the, the flying nun set and they go through new york street where we see a department store in the background and then we go to where the kidnappers basically are are chasing them in the song and they're sitting in half a car. And that particular section of the half a car is also right there behind that barn. Oh my God. Now you see, I figured that had to be somewhere else because where would there be wrecks of cars? Right, right. And that particular that same particular area of where this this uh, music video basically was for that is also visible in episode three of the first season, Monkeys vs. Machine, mm-hmm. where we find and and this will surprise you. I mean, I know this ranch basically pretty well. I've I've you know done research on it for the past twenty years, but I always had this one area of one of the videos um, in that particular episode, also set to Last Train to Clarksville, of the guys being at a construction site. Mm-hmm. And I knew it had to be somewhere on the ranch. I just could not place it. 
Yeah. And believe it or not, yesterday I found a spot with the high def uh, release. And, and so I was able to capture some images from that and double check it. I was able to find a spot that I have not been able to find before. And it's also in that berm area in a location that I had never seen before. So that just made my day. It just absolutely made my day. And so I uncovered another mystery. And this is how this is how my life goes with this research on the ranch. Every single time I have discovery, it's like a miracle for me. I love it. If you don't have a time machine, you know, so much of it isn't there anymore. Right. Uh, that's yeah. what's so sad. So much of this is gone. And it's such a shame because this is how I personally feel. I think that places like this should be a historical, you know, remembrance of some sort i think i don't think everything should always be torn down i know it's a movie lot you know i know it's active and films films get made over there but when certain movies like say high noon or even the wild one which is also filmed on the western set they have such significance in in our entertainment history in our movie history mm -hmm. that i think certain things should be preserved from that and not just being destroyed and unfortunately that's what happened to a lot of the columbia ranch they just it got destroyed. It got sold off and destroyed. By the end of the year, we'll have the entire city ringed with parking lots. Oh, but Mr. Zeckenbush, that would mean tearing down museums, schools, hospitals. You can't stand in the way of progress. So, so getting back to the berms, I know that sure, there's, sure. Um, I believe, that is to say, I don't know, I think, that it was used prominently in the Mexican episode. It's a nice place to visit, which would be when the... Um, Mexican bandits had their their camp and, and Davy was tied to a tree and, and Peter tried to send the bandit up over the hill to where the fiesta was. Uh, buenos dias, El Gardo. Uh, come over. Uh, uh, yo, Gardero, El Prisonero, usted uh, va o partio. Yes, yes. Uh, El Diablo, uh, lots of food. Uh, there's a party, a fiesta, lots of carry-ons uh, over the hill. Yeah, that's a berm. That's what a berm looks that's like. <laughs> exactly. That is a berm. But most of that was filmed on the other berm in front of what they call the lagoon. There's another berm with a lagoon in front of it. Now, people who are familiar with Gidget, the television show, will also recognize this lagoon. There, there are The lagoon basically was a, a man-made, I guess you could say almost like a pool, but it was a shallow pool, not any deeper than about six feet at the most. And we, we actually see the boys run in front of that many a times. Actually, they run through it. There's a couple of episodes um, that they actually get. But there's one episode where Davy is in a boat and it sinks. If we hurry, men, we can destroy the British at Trenton. Uh, Davy, you are British. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Uh, Davy, there's too much stuff in a boat. Nonsense. Boulder dash. We have to be prepared. Boulder it really there, is. There's too much too stuff much, in a boat. Launch the ship. Taking too much stuff. That's silly. Nonsense. Launch the ship. Oh, all right. <laughs> Launch the ship, I say. Ah. Launch the ship. Launch the ship. Launch the ship. Launch the ship. Monkeys marooned. There you go. Monkeys marooned. And, um, so that's on that lagoon, and then yeah. they go further in, and you'll see, uh, you know, the, the Tarzan guys when they're in their jungle outfits and all that stuff. All of that is filmed on that particular area of the berm, mm -hmm. which is the same area as where Davy is tied to the tree, and Peter tries to, you know, help him out and, you know, <laughs> release him. Mm -hmm. So that's the other berm area, basically. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And that berm was also used and the lagoon was also used again in Monkeys Marooned when they theoretically crossed a stretch of ocean to reach this deserted island and they pulled their rowboat up on the beach. Yeah. That's that's the same lagoon. It's the same berm. Um, they're just probably a few yards away from where they started. Yeah, basically. <laughs> that, that's the other thing. The berm is basically in a horseshoe shape around the lagoon. Yeah. And so they were able to film from many different angles and make it look differently. Uh, there is actually – there are two stretches within that berm that are pathways that we see also in many of the episodes where they use this particular berm. But they go th- either climb up or down or go through the bushes and trees. Yeah. Wait! Huh? Our footprints! What? Great Scott, that means we're lost! We've been going around in oh, circles! Mickey, oh, Mickey, Mickey, it's a small set, man. We have to use yeah, the same no, place, you know, different like, bushes, like trees. Like the Lone Ranger and the Big Rock, you remember? Well, that's oh, that always used to come up, yeah, didn't you, man? Now, I'm going to make a confession. Sure. Because I really feel kind of silly now. But only as I was preparing for this interview and doing research and looking at lots and lots of screenshots that it suddenly hit me like a bolt out of the blue that a lot of the episodes that I thought were filmed on an actual beach were <laughs> not filmed on an actual beach. And once I realized this, that I realized that what I thought a California beach looks like is actually a berm on the Columbia Ranch in Burbank, which is way inland. <laughs> yep. So basically, if you don't see the water, then you're not on a beach. <laughs> Correct. So, Correct. for example, one of the first episodes they did, Don't Look a Gift Horse in the Mouth. Hey, mister. <laughs> Do you live around here? Yeah. Up there. Would you watch my horse for me? Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh-huh. Davy does his tumbling tricks down the berm yes and the little boy rides his horse over the berm yes <laughs> exactly you're not on a beach you're on a berm yep. <laughs> i was a 99 pound weakling all those scenes with brenda and the bodybuilder yes. and shaku yes that's not a beach no not at all <laughs> That's Hollywood magic for you right there. Oh, my God. It's like all these years I've just assumed that California beaches had a hill with vegetation on it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking at this thing and that's not a beach at all. Nope. Not at all. There, there were a few occasions that they did go out to the beach. Uh, yeah, they oh, went yeah. to Santa Monica Beach and, and Catalina Beach and all that. But yeah. uh, in, most of them were shot right there on the, the lagoon area. So while the monkeys were filming at the Columbia Ranch, would there have been other productions also filming nearby at the same time? Actually, there, there would have been, yes. Uh, it, this was a, a you know fully functional lot, and so there were generally about two or three productions sometimes going on at the same time, not all the time. Uh, you know, the scheduling was done in such a way that they would not interfere with each other. So if, say, there was some shooting going on at the lagoon, at the Burnham Lagoon for, say, um, Gidget or whatever, then the monkeys might be filming, say, somewhere on the Western Street. And that would not interfere unless, of course, there were some scenes where gunshots would have to be fired or, or you know, explosions would have to be had. But then scheduling would have allowed for that to have happened without, you know, interrupting another shooting schedule or another production somewhere. Wow. Uh, but yes, it, 
they did have some, you know, simultaneous productions going on in some cases. I know that one TV show that was filming at the ranch the same time the monkeys were, were filming there, maybe not the same minute, but certainly mm-hmm. the same month, was The Flying Nun. Correct. But er- earlier right. you mentioned there was a convent set. Was yes. that for The Flying Nun? Well, that particular set, yes. There, there was another set originally there that kind of resembled the convent. But, you know, long story short, and I don't know if listeners are familiar with or not, but when Gidget was canceled, it was canceled abruptly without really any any reason why. And, and Sally Field was like, you know, she still was under contract with Screen Gems. And when they find out that the popularity was so tremendous for that show, Screen Gems was scrambling for saying, okay, we need to have another show with her in it. So they came up with The Flying Nun. And while that show was being conceptualized, they they also had to find a set for this. So they quickly redressed the set that was behind the Partridge Family House, uh, which is what we now know as the convent. It was actually a kind of an, an old rustic type, well, I guess you could say European style corner area, it looked almost very French. And they redressed it to make it look like the convent. And so um, that was in that particular area right there on the right-hand side of the Western Street, but right below what they call the Colonial slash European Street. And would they have been filming there a lot? I mean, I I remember the, the Flying Nun. It, it would almost have to be a very outdoor kind of show. Yes, yes. They <laughs> did film there an awful lot for outdoor scenes. Um, and, and we see also in that particular show many times when, when Sally Field goes out the gate and then goes on to what they call the European street set, uh, with the church in the middle of it, which incidentally, we, we actually see the monkeys in that many times too, during the, the episode, it's a nice place to visit where they're basically all over that particular set. Wait a minute. Don't you think maybe we ought to take something out of this? Like a, like a club card or some badges? Badges? We don't need no stinking badges. Now, at the time when they filmed that particular episode, it was still dressed for uh, the I Dream of Genie episode that was being filmed at the time. The monkeys filmed, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, they filmed from 66 to 68, correct? Uh, actually, they finished filming in December of 67. They were filming there at the same time that Bewitched and I Dream of Genie was filming there. The fact that Bewitched and I Dream of Genie were filming in the same place at the same time blows my mind. <laughs> well, see, I, Bewitched never filmed on that particular section. They never filmed in the European street until after the monkeys had been, you know, canceled, mm-hmm. basically, and Bewitched moved into its seven, eight season. And that was already after the fire. Unfortunately, that whole area, the Western Street set plus the European Street set, Colonial, and even the convent area burned in the 1970s, or actually 1970. In, uh, in January of 1970, it had a major fire and destroyed three quarters of that particular area. And then it had two more fires that exact same year, which destroyed the Parcher family house, the Blondie house, the church, and the entire convent set. Oh, man. So, but that was way after the monkey's... Yeah, we had a lot of fires on that particular lot. Were back lots particularly susceptible to fire? Um, Unfortunately, back then it was uh, because there was no, uh, I guess you could say, code instated for movie lots, per se. Uh, A lot of them, 
you know, Columbia being one of them, but also Warner Brothers and, and Paramount and Universal and so did not have sprinklers installed in that time period. Mm-hmm. Some of them did, but it was not necessary. It was not a requirement um, in California and Los Angeles law. So therefore, a lot of these places didn't have it, which is the reason why so many studios and movie back lots basically burned during those particular times because the timber that they use, all the lumber that they use for the structures that they build, whether it was back in the 30s or 40s or even early 50s and also, was so dry because of the heat that was there because they were open elements. They weren't enclosed like our houses are, like so many of the sets are now oh, these days. Yeah. Right. So what would happen is they would literally dry out. The, the wood would be so dry that, you know, with all the equipment being placed around everywhere and all that, and the Fresnel lenses that they use for the lights and um, the reflection screens that they use would sometimes amplify and just happen to cascade, whether it was a sunlight or just some other light cascading or ricocheting off of something causing, you know, just a tiny little area that just overheated and it would just cause a fire and burn. And unfortunately, it did happen to the Columbia lot uh, numerous times in the early 70s. And um, it just, yeah, it it took away our entire Western set. Okay, so moving forward into what's happened since 1967 when the Mucky ceased production, Mm -hmm. what what is on the Columbia Ranch now? And... Mm -hmm. How is it being used now, and what, what's been made there in the years since the 60s? What TV shows well, or movies? Uh, actually, it, it had, was a complete ongoing facility the entire time, and, and has been even since the 60s, uh, even since the fires. The, the last big, big fire that the ranch had was in 1974. By this time, it had already merged with Warner Brothers and became what they called the Burbank Studios. Um, but we lost, or it lost basically the entire city street sets, the New York street, Brownstone street, modern street, modern place, Skid Row. Um, it had all burned down. Uh, the lagoon area was sold off to a shopping center that's there now that housed an Albertsons and a CVS. Um, and so all those areas basically were gone. So what really was left of it, um, was the park area and Blondie Street. The western set stayed, even though it had been rebuilt, uh, up until about the mid-90s, and then it got taken down too. So all we really have left is the sound stages, the park area, and Blondie Street, the facilities around the Blondie Street. That's basically all there is left. They filmed many of shows and episodes of, of, of our even modern television shows still there today. Uh, there were movies. Um, I'm trying to think of, of modern shows. Like I said, Pretty Little Liars is something that has been filmed over there. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, if, if anybody's familiar with the, episode, the show V from 1984. Oh, God, the I loved V. It, film, it was filmed over there, too. Partially, not all the way, but partially it filmed over there. Oh, wow. Um, let's see. The Waltons, actually for their reunion movies, uh, did several shots there on the, on the lot. As a matter of fact, uh, the Skevington House, which I know we didn't touch upon, but it's at the end of uh, – it's on the other side of the park. It was actually used for the uh, sisters in the Waltons. I can't remember their names now. Um, let's see what else, uh, the middle was filmed over there. 
Just, do I remember? Know. Do I remember seeing um, Fantasy Island? Yes, Fantasy Island was also filmed over there. A lot of people, and I'm glad you brought that up. I totally forgot about to mention that. A lot of pe people think that it was filmed on the lagoon area, but it was not because this was after all the fires and after that particular land had been sold off. Uh, that they filmed on what used to be the city streets. That whole area got turned into another pond slash lagoon and got dressed up to uh, resemble basically the... Um, the Arboretum Gardens down there in Los Angeles with a Victorian house that basically represented um, the mansion. I, I, would, I would suggest people to go to, if they want to, go check out the website and they can kind of get a little bit better understanding of all of this. You mentioned people going to the site and I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is absolutely mesmerizing to just wander around. You've got this interactive map, and all you do is you just click, and it takes you to that street, and you can see it from different angles, from different time periods. And you're like, oh, my God, I had no idea that that was the same thing as the other, and it's just mind-blowing stuff. Like the Apple House um, mm -hmm. from Apple's Way being turned into the Mr. Rourke House in Fantasy Island. It's just yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah. So what, is, what is the website address? It is www.columbiaranch, one word, .net. And are you making some changes there? I think I saw some... some... I, am, I am actually. I'm trying to get it, kind of get it uh, upgraded with our modern technology since we've uh, changed web browsers and our web browsers have become more responsive. And also I wanted to make it more responsive for people who use their cell phone or tablets because it's not completely friendly for that. So I'm trying to upgrade it and update it and add more information to it uh, to give people even a better understanding of what the place was like. And on your Facebook uh, uh, page, I've seen you've done some 360 degree. Yes, actually, that's one of the things I have been working on, believe it or not, for almost 10 years. <laughs> I have been rebuilding the ranch, building by building, in 3D with the help of blueprints and everything else that I have and trying to recreate the whole 40-acre uh, lot as it was basically around the time of the monkeys between 1966 and 1969 uh, before the fire. So people can kind of get a comprehensive under understanding of what it was like. And you can actually walk through it so people can actually take a virtual tour through the entire lot. Now, currently, that's not on the website. That was just a couple of things you posted no. on Facebook. So what's your right. Facebook address? The, the Facebook page is, of course, uh, www.facebook.com forward slash Columbia Ranch dot net. And that should take you to the website. Oh, go like what it. Go think? follow it. Go do whatever it is you <laughs> need to do so you can see what's going on there because it's absolutely wonderful. Now, you've been to the Columbia Ranch yourself. Is it open to the public? Um, unfortunately, it is not. It is still a active ranch uh, now owned by Warner Brothers, and it is not open, unfortunately, to the public. Ready, fellas? Yeah. Lights, yeah. camera, action. However, <laughs> hold it. No, you're not allowed here. Hold it. Hold it. Oh, it's quite a kidder, AMD, trying to keep you off your own lot. Uh, could you step aside, please, for MD? Thank you very much. Uh, just a second. I can phone a front office. No one can tie up the line. So how is it that you were able to visit? <laughs> Well, you know, as they say in Hollywood, you know, I'll have my contact, you know, I'll have my <laughs> secretary contact you and so and so. I, I just, I was very fortunate that I did have uh, a few friends that were in the business, that are in the business, that were able to get me in there.
Well, I'm glad that you were able to, because if anyone should, it's the person who's building the 3D virtual model. I just want to finish up. Um, you've mentioned, um, you know, watching the monkeys in high def recently. What is your monkey story? When did you discover the monkeys? And, and you know, is it something that you watched as a child or something you discovered as an adult? Well, it's kind of interesting in a sense. My mother was actually a monkeys fan. She kind of had a, a crush on Mickey. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I did grow up. I'm not necessarily watching the show because it just... Uh, I'm a child from the 70s, so it just kind of was before me. Mm-hmm. And um, But I grew up with some of the music, and on occasion I did catch some episodes, and I thought they were kind of kooky and funny and goofy, but at the same time I didn't quite understand it. And I probably was just too young, that's why. But um, in, in doing the research for The Ranch and a lot of the old television shows and stuff, of course I, I stumbled upon the monkeys even back, you know, back in the early 90s. And... Um, I, that's when I realized that you know so much of their episodes were filmed on the ranch, which just aided me in my research. So I became a fan of them at the same time, and uh, I just, I just, I think it's it's, it's great. I love the show, and uh, I, I just, I think I'll be honest with you, I'm I'm more in love with the aspect of that they were all over the ranch, and I finally got to see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly, especially with your big project to recreate the ranch in that era. Do you have a particular yeah. Monkeys episode that you love? Um, I'm going to be very honest with you. I don't have a particular one. My my most particular ones that I like the most are the ones where they really are just having the romps around the ranch, where I can see anything and everything in different areas. And I love to uh, – I'm really crazy doing this, but I love to just freeze frame it. You know, I have so many captures. I mean, I have in the thousands of captures from the Monkeys alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't even mention how many – thousands of captures I have from other television shows because it's just beyond. I've already had to switch computers three times just to hold it. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it just anything that has to do with the monkeys roaming around on the ranch. Those are my favorite ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know you had asked me earlier in, uh, you know, if there was any favorite song or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I know that's something that you do for your guests when, when they're on, if they have a particular song or anything like that i'll be honest with you i like the i guess you could say the interludes for their scene changes or whatever that they do so it's more <laughs> musical but i think they're very fitting because they're perfect for that but when it comes to your f- favorite song i guess uh, my favorite one over the past two days that i was watching the show and, and listening to everything is uh, you just may be the one mm-hmm. is is a really good song i like that one I think that's quite enough. I just want to tell you two things about what you said in the last couple of minutes. First is that one of my uh, podcast partners who does the color cast commentaries with me is madly in love with the incidental music. And he wants Rhino to put out an entire CD of just incidental music clips. We've actually talked to Rhino about that. And unfortunately, the way the sound was recorded, the clips the incidental music is on the same track as the dialogue. Yes. So there's no way to split it out and, and just do the music. That's a problem. Also, I discovered the monkeys as an adult. I may have been in the same age cohort with you. You said you were a child of the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, I was too young to see it in the sixties. 
and I'd only just discovered the monkeys seriously um, in the last five years. Wow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very fresh to it. It's, it's all exciting, <laughs> exciting and new. <laughs> well, and that's, that's what's so great about it. it. Is It is exciting and new. And, and yeah. even, like I said, just watching in the past few days, I discovered some new aspects of it. And it's like, I just, that just rewards me in more ways than anything. So, you know, therefore the series is great. And I discovered something new and the monkeys gave me something new. Oh, that's such a wonderful place to end. Misha Hoff, thank you so much for being on Silch. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I am just giggling with happiness over how well this has gone. <laughs> well, it's been my pleasure. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad that, that, you know, you guys asked me to come join you for the podcast and, and, I'm, I'm very, very excited about this. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Oh, you're very welcome. It's, it's been wonderful. Thank you for listening to this very special episode of Zilch. We will see you soon as we race on our way to Zilch episode 100. Thank you for listening. Peace and love. Take care of one another. Stay safe. And always take time to monkey around. See ya! And that's our show. Zilch is an online nonprofit monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the monkeys or any of their members, past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Bird. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around. <laughs> Don't now. Now really, everybody cool it, because I won't be able to get through this. Action. Hey, wow. It's a groovy button. What does it say? Love is the ultimate trip. Oh, gee, that's a nice thought. Gee, that's a neat button. What does it say? Let's go again. Which doesn't feature a swimming pool, but it does Hello, feature... Hello, are you still there? Oh, dear. Okay. Melanie? Yeah, I'm still here. Still there? I am. She's I'm still talking. connected. I'm talking. Okay. I'm talking. Hopefully she'll I'm catch still up talking. here in a second. I'm still okay. talking. I'm still talking. Can you hear me now? No, I can't hear you. Hello. Oh dear. Yes. Once the show went on the air, it was very rare for them to do location filming. Correct. And my phone is ringing. I am I so embarrassed. Don't. It's great. Okay. This is the problem. I have. A phone I can unplug, and I have a phone that's built into the kitchen wall, and it cannot mm-hmm. be unplugged. So I'm just going to have to wait for it to stop ringing. I, am I just so love sorry. the old fat. I just love the old fashioned ring. My, that's, my, yeah, I like the old fashioned ring too. It's, I do too. It, it I actually have, happens, but it's fun. I actually have have three old fashioned telephones that I still use to this day. Uh, you know, they're Western digital or Western electric 500s with that particular ring. And I just love it. It's just great. Episode, you can probably yeah, I cut edit all that, that out. down. Yeah. I, I'm going to cut all that out and it'll be all be smooth as silk. And well, I mean, it's just like us. They all think we're competent. <laughs> you might even have some, uh, some stuff for the bloopers uh, um, at the end. Of course, you're going to have to use the thing about they think we're competent in the bloopers. (laughs) Yes.